You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The next morning, January 1st, 2005, my whole household woke up early to walk down to the Rose Parade, which winds its way through Pasadena every New Year's Day. In the still dark early morning, I was awake in time to find Jupiter bright in the sky before the sun came up. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. That was it. The end of the planets. Maybe. Unbeknownst to anyone, well, except for Diane, to whom I told everything, and my parents who were visiting, and all my students, and a few friends here and there, Two days after Christmas, I had discovered the brightest thing I had yet seen. I didn't know for sure how big it was, so it was not in time to win my bet. But something that bright might well be a planet. In honor of the season when it was discovered, I called it Santa. A few years earlier, my first reaction to the discovery of Santa would have been, I bet it's bigger than Pluto. I finally found the 10th planet. But now, though, I was a bit more skeptical. Quarwar and Sedna had both fooled me with their anomalously frosty surfaces, which made them appear much brighter than I expected. But even if Santa's surface was as anomalously frosty as Sedna's, it would still mean that Santa was the size of Pluto. But what if Santa were even frostier? What if Santa was covered in, say, pure ice, which would make it even shinier and brighter than Sedna? I wasn't going to get my hopes up too much. Mike Brown is the Richard and Barbara Rosenberg Professor of Planetary Astronomy at the California Institute of Technology. His new book is How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, it's my pleasure. Mike, one of the things I love about this book is the way you give us an astronomer's life in full. And, you know, I was kind of shocked to when at the very beginning you told us that as an astronomer you prefer to stay up late rather than get up early. I, I'm it's it's a it's a good thing because uh, astronomers are up working all the time and and there are some people who who try to do astronomy but don't like staying up late and that makes it pretty tough on them. Now, um, let's talk uh, about the the way this book is laid out because you did a great job of creating the timeline and telling us this story going back and forth between the the discovery of planets, the discovery of your wife, the discovery of your child, all these great events in your life. As you wrote this book, how did you um, put these parts together in in the order? Talk about just sitting down to compose. It was I, I knew where I wanted to start. Um, I really wanted to start with the 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 this moment when I was sitting at the telescope um, down at Palomar Observatory when I first admitted to a friend of mine that I really thought I was going to find a tenth planet. And, and that, was, that was such the perfect place to start the overall story. But at that point, you have to go back and then talk about what a planet is and what people have thought planets were in the past, what I thought a planet was in, in my childhood. Uh, and so the story weaves from that moment forward, but also backwards. And so it was, it was, a, it was a fun time putting those, all those timelines together, including uh, meeting my wife, the birth of my daughter, which took place while all of this was, was happening, and, and she's so much to me a part of the story that there was no way to tell it without. Oh, I think that's one of the things that, that makes this book so unique and so powerful is that this gives us a view of science in full 
because we tend to think of science as happening almost like a computer program. You turn, you come in, you, you the scientist walk into the, your laboratory, you plug yourself in, and you click, click through eight hours of work or 12 hours of work, and then you come home, and there's not any connection. But this book gives us a great idea of how these different threads of life are woven together and contribute to one another. And it, it's actually a very different way from, uh, I think in, in eighth grade, in my eighth grade science class, I learned about the scientific method mm -hmm. and scientists formulate a hypothesis, do an experiment, look at the results and see what happens. And, and that's, sometimes that actually happens. Sometimes I have a hypothesis and I go out and do it. But in general, this is not the way I do science or most other scientists really do science. In, in the case that, that I describe in the book, what I really had, rather than a, a hypothesis, I think the best description is I had a hunch. I had a hunch there was something out there. I didn't have any particularly good scientific reasons that I could prove my hunch was right, but I really thought there was probably something out there, and I had a desire to go find it. That's what's so interesting. Now, you start this at, at, at Palomar when you were going to, when you just to explain to somebody that you had a hunch. And you did something else, too, didn't you? I did um, what, what scientists also never do, uh, but I think they should more. I, I made a bet. I, I, I told her that I, I thought somebody was going to find a 10th planet. And uh, I said that uh, we, we made a bet that somebody would find it by December 31st, 2004. Um, and uh, there was uh, uh, five bottles of champagne resting on it. Now, uh, after that, you take us back a little bit to the time when you first learned about the Kuiper Belt. And one of the things that's so interesting to me about this book is the way it gives us a, a, both a long distance and a very close-up view of this, the history of science. Because to me, the Kuiper Belt, I, I, I know about it, and it, I always thought that maybe they discovered it back in the 50s or something. So to, to hear that when, when it was first discovered that you were there is kind of shocking. It's, it's shocking to me, too, in that uh, it, uh, I first heard the term Kuiper Belt, I'm pretty sure, on this, this day in September of uh, 1992, um, right when the very first new object in the Kuiper Belt, Pluto was in the Kuiper Belt, too, but the very first new object in the Kuiper Belt was discovered, and it was by a friend of mine uh, who was in the office just a couple doors down, and she came and told me, and she said, I, I just found something in the Kuiper Belt, and my reaction was, the, the what? The Ki and I, I didn't know what it was. It wasn't part of my astronomical training, um, and so I, I had a lot of catching up to do. Well, talk about um, the the kind of uh, what happens because we're sitting in a in a series of offices, and, and how this kind of the society of scientists contributes to what you know and what you do and how you do it and, and even why you do it. You know, that's actually, it's, I, I have an a, a interesting perspective on that, I think, because uh, I'm, I'm an astronomer. My PhD is in astronomy, mm -hmm. um, and af and, but, I, but I study planets with telescopes. And so uh, after getting my PhD and, and going on to become a professor, I'm now at Caltech. I'm in a planetary science and geology department. So my immediate colleagues on, on all sides are are more likely to be geologists or environmental scientists um, than people who study the, the distant universe. And that has thoroughly changed my perspective on how I look at and, and look for things that are, that are planets or, or not planets and how I think about them. And so when I, when I come up with analogies for the, for the word planet and how we use the word planet, my analogies tend to be 
things on the earth, it tends to be the word continent or, or the word island, um, as opposed to the analogies that astronomers tend to come up with is, you know, differences between galaxies and stars and everything. So it's, I have, I have, I have totally been subsumed by geology to the, to the extent that I actually teach geology classes now, which is strange for me. Now, uh, one of the things, you talk about kind of your upbringing as a boy, and, and I'd like you, I think that's really an important part of a, of a male scientist's life, is, you know, this, the, the stories for boys, the toys, the, the, just that kind of vibe of looking at, collecting the things that have the planet. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your childhood and I, discovering the, your first discovery of the planets. It's so that my, my childhood was a, I was in a, a special place to be, to be a kid, particularly a kid with interest in, in space. I, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where they were building the Saturn V rockets to, to go to the moon at the time. And my, my father worked on the Apollo program and, and pretty much everybody's father worked on the Apollo program. Wow. Um, <laughs> or on some sort of mm-hmm. rocket program for the army or something. It was, it was you know, the, its nickname is Rocket City USA, and it's because it's true. And so, uh, and, and just as I was, you know, that, that best impressionable age, five, five years old, the, uh, the, the first man landed on the moon. And so it was the most space-oriented, exciting place that I could possibly imagine. And so I had every possible space toy you could imagine. Um, rockets and lunar landers and lunar modules and plastic astronauts and uh we would we would play astronaut all the time i think when the the rest of the world was playing cowboys and indians we would play astronauts and astronauts and aliens of course because the aliens would usually eat the astronauts um so it was it was a fantastic place to grow up with with those that sort of interest uh what what it didn't have which is which i people are still always shocked to hear is that very few people that i know from that era grew up to become uh, astronomers. It seems like a very natural thing. You, you have that. They, most, of them, most of my friends from, from uh, childhood um, are now actually engineers who work on those sorts of things. So it was a very engineering town, uh, much more interested in rockets than in the science of what's going on in the sky. So I, I had to discover the sky itself um, on my own and, and more or less accidentally. I was always a kid who looked up at the sky and liked the dark skies that, that northern Alabama had at the time, but I really remember this very distinct moment in high school um, where I had been watching the sky and there were these two really bright things close to each other and, and I had been watching them long enough to realize that over the course of a couple months they had been sort of doing this, this dance around each other. And now as someone who is an astronomer for a living, I think to myself, how could I possibly have not looked up and said, oh, Lyle, look, these planets, those are really bright planets up there. But I, it didn't even, I didn't even really stop to think about what I was watching. I just, for a couple of months, watched these things going across the sky. And then one day I picked up a newspaper, I think it was, and, and, and happened to see in it uh, a, a paragraph saying, you know, that's Jupiter and Saturn up in the sky, by the way. And it blew my mind. And that was, that was the moment. From that moment on, I made that connection that these things that I loved, these planets, I got magazines and books about planets, and these, these things that I loved were actually up in the sky too. And it's, it's this weird abstraction that we allow ourselves to do that, you know, Jupiter is this thing NASA sends spacecraft to. But no, actually, Jupiter is this really bright thing up in the sky right now. And, uh, you know, I, I get out my binoculars 
uh, most nights and go look at the moons of Jupiter because you can see them with your binoculars. And it's really right there right now. And that's that to me is some of the most exciting stuff about, about looking up at the sky. Well, you were uh, just reenacting what the, the Greeks did and identifying the wanderers. And, and that's one of the things I, I like is that in this book is you give us a great sense of the immediate history of science, the Kuiper Belt, the Pluto, and all and all the things that happen right in the present, essentially, of the book, but also a, a long history of science. And I think that that gives us some of that's kind of shocking, actually. Well, it's, if you're if you're going to think about the word planet, you really do have to take it back to the the original Greek meaning of the word planet, because there there were planets long before uh, any of us came along to debate what the word planets were. There are, of course, seven of them because the sun was a planet and the, the moon was a planet and then all the other ones you could see. And so the word planet has been been sort of moving around for, for thousands of years. The, even the days of the week are named after planets, which I didn't know that. Yeah, the seven, seven days of the week are those seven original planets. Some of them are obvious. Sunday, mm. Sunday. Mm. Uh, Monday is the moon. And I'm, I, I, I cannot always remember the rest of them. Um, because they're, they're weird combinations of Norse and Old English. But some mm-hmm. of them, uh, Saturday is mm-hmm. very obvious. Um, Thursday is, is Thor's day. Mm-hmm. Thor is, is Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, v- Friday is from, it, it works better in French, um, but Friday is from, uh, is Venus in, in uh, Old English, Frigga is her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's really quite amazing that this is, uh, there, there's still a debate about whether or not the reason there are seven days of the week is because there were seven things and you can, you can see in the sky. But it's certainly clear that the seven days of the week uh, are, are each associated with one of, these, one of these planets. Most of us have, are, were brought up on this nine-planet solar system. But it, and I always, again, thought that that was from time immemorial, uh, and it wasn't. And you talk about the, the history of, of our understanding of the solar system, and it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and the, the, the first ninth planet uh, was... <laughs> I like that. ...was, was discovered in, in, uh, in 1803, I think it was. Um, and so when, when the asteroids, the first asteroid, which would have been the, the um, Ceres, Ceres was the eighth planet because there were only seven other planets known before then. Ceres was the eighth planet. The next one was the ninth planet, Vesta. Um, the next asteroid, the next asteroid, they were all called planets in, until sometime in the, the 1850s, Be sometime between about 1850 and 1900, um, people generally decided that there were too many asteroids and they were too small compared to the planets and they shouldn't really be called planets anymore. Eventually, uh, we, we got to, to the point where we, you know, it was agreed that the solar system had only eight planets. That was in the early 1900s. And then in uh, 1930, Clyde Tombaugh discovered uh, Pluto with the, was that with the Schmidt telescope? No, he discovered it with a, a, a telescope um, at Lowell Observatory, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a fairly small um, specialized telescope that they had built just just for that purpose. The Schmidt telescope hadn't yet been invented. It had not yet been invented. Now y- you spend a lot of time at Palomar uh, Observatory, a- and it, it's an interesting observatory. So talk about your first search for for the tenth uh, planet. <laughs> my my first search. Um, I started in uh, in 1998, and which was you know, only six years after the first Kuiper Belt object had been discovered. But even mm-hmm. in those six years, it had become clear to me that there 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 just must be something else out there, and and I wanted to find it. But the only way to find something um, that's that's somewhere out in space, but you don't know where it is, 
you have to look at the whole sky. And the whole sky is an immensely big place for telescopes which are designed to look at tiny spots of the sky at once. So the, the trick that we used was to use this old telescope that had been designed to look at large parts of the sky, but had been designed to do it with photographic plates. Photographic plates, literally a, a piece of glass on which you paint photographic emulsion. You slap it on the back of the telescope. You, you uh, let it expose to the sky for half an hour. You then um, s send it down to the basement to be developed and have to look at it by that after the fact. It was an incredibly cumbersome task compared to modern astronomy, but it was the only way to cover that much sky. So I was pretty excited. I, I, I knew that uh, even though this was primitive, uh, it was still going to be the thing that was going to net me that 10th planet. I just, I just knew it was out there. I knew I was going to find it that way. These are big plates too. I mean, this isn't small. These are like there's ten, eight and a half by ten. They are they are um, sixteen inch square. Oh, really? Yeah. That, that that that's big. Of course, the funny part about the photographic plates is, I found absolutely nothing on the photographic <laughs> plates after all that work, and, and I would hate to give the impression that photographic plates were actually a useful thing. But they were useful in, in one sense, in that because, as I was saying, we think of a, of a astronomer looking at looking at the stars looking through the telescope maybe looking at the pictures you take but it, for you um, astronomy is uh, a big chunk of astronomy is computer programming it, it, it's it's a it's an amazing thing you would you would think that it's that having a good eye or being able to uh, spot something is is the most important skill and but but you're absolutely true you you com programming computers to understand data is a lot of what modern astronomy is about. So I, I spent, I spend a lot of my time sitting at my desk in front of my computer, um, figuring out different ways to have the computer look at the, the reams and reams of data. Because these days, and, and uh, in, in all the things that I've been looking at across the sky, there's no possible way a human could ever look at all these things and, and, um, and find something. So you really need the computer to be doing a lot of the work for you. Now, you were using a computer to analyze those plates, weren't you? Yeah, so for the photographic plates, uh, unlike Clyde Tombaugh, mm -hmm. to find Pluto who actually looked at them by eye, <laughs> um, I couldn't do that because I, I had done the calculation just for fun one time of how long it would take to look at them all by eye, and it was going to take uh, uh, 40 years of eight hours a day with, with no weekends. And um, I couldn't even convince a graduate <laughs> student to do that part. So, so I had instead do the, the computer programming. So we, we scanned them into the computer and had the computer analyze them. And um, it, it took me most of a year to get the data analysis down right. But uh, we had finally the computer went and looked through every single one of those spots in the sky we'd looked at. And you found? And we found um, nothing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing at all. Um, three years of doing searching across the sky with these big bulky photographic plates uh, excited every night that maybe that was going to be the night to find something and and we found nothing well talk about uh, that kind of work uh, when you when you did that um, how, how did you feel I mean what did what were your what was going through your mind it, it was difficult because it was I, I was so excited about this project and mm -hmm. and and I just knew that there was a tenth planet out there to be found. Um, and as we continued um, analyzing data and analyzing data and, and finding nothing in it that was really uh, looked like anything real, I was getting uh, more and more depressed. It, I just, it, it was hard for me to accept that this was really going to be it, that there really was nothing out there for me to find. 
Um, so it was, it was, I, it was that, that summer of that, uh, of that year when we were finally doing the analysis and looking that summer and I would go up to the telescope to try to confirm maybe really we'd found something and I would always confirm that we really hadn't found something. I was, I was definitely getting uh, a little bit low, I would say. Well, now at the same time, however, you, you do have, you had a personal life. Um, conveniently, <laughs> because <laughs> at that exact moment, and it was actually one of the moments when I was up at the telescope to, um, to, to look for these, to, to confirm some of the objects we'd found. At that same moment, I was, because I was at the telescope, I was asked to give a talk to a, to a, a group of, of, uh, from Caltech who were coming up to visit the telescope. And I thought, oh, sure, why not? I'm, I'm there at the telescope. I might as well give a talk. And uh, I remember this moment very vividly, standing there underneath the, the floor of the telescope, waiting for the group to come in. And, and finally, the the, the director of the group opens the door and walks in and introduces herself. Her name is Diane uh, Binney, and she says, Hi, my name's Diane, and I saw her, and I think I said, <laughs> and, um, and that turns out, after much uh, uh, back and forth, to be um, now my wife. Uh, and and a- as a scientist, you're an observant man, you're smart, you know what's going on around you, you're able to analyze and break down uh, the world around you. Maybe not so much. <laughs> it took you a little while to, 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 was, to reach the, the no, planet that I, you'd order. <laughs> I, 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 I think, yeah, okay, maybe that's true. But the way I like to look at it, um, I, I was, maybe I was too smart. Um, mm-hmm. So, so uh, Diane, at the time, worked on the Caltech campus, and she's she is a uh, a very attractive woman working on the Caltech campus, which is known mostly for a lot of geeky people who don't ever even look up to notice that uh, there are attractive men or women walking around the campus. But I sort of expected that because she was this very attractive woman walking around the Caltech campus, probably she got followed around a lot by people who found her a very attractive woman walking around the Caltech campus. So I thought, I'm so smart. I know what I'm going to do. I'm really not going to talk to her that much or, or pester her because even though she was very nice to me that night, I just I knew she she was happy that I was giving a talk to her group and she wanted me to give uh, talks in the future. And so I was I agreed and then didn't pester her after that because I was not going to you know make a fool out of myself like all these other people making a fool out of themselves. But eventually, you decided you your powers of detection. When I'm when I'm hit over the head enough times, I can eventually figure this out. So yeah, so we went we I, we went on a trip with her group to mm-hmm. Hawaii, mm-hmm. and uh, I did a very good job of giving the talks there and talking to all the people in her group and uh, being very nice to her and and uh, not making a fool of myself because that was my my prime directive there: do not make a fool of yourself. Um, immensely enjoyed myself and then we came back to the Caltech campus and I accidentally found myself wandering by her office a few times a day which is starting to make a fool of yourself um, and then we would talk and I'd be like oh nope sorry bye I have to go don't want to make a fool of myself and then at one point we actually went out for coffee and sat down and had coffee for about three hours and I thought to myself you know she 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 did not need to have coffee with me for three hours and I wasn't keeping her there she actually wanted to have coffee with me. So that was the impeccable logic that led me <laughs> to finally realize that, that maybe maybe all this time I actually had been being a little bit stupid. Now, a, at the same time, you're, you're 
teaching at Caltech, and, and you're you're about to engage embark on your second search. Tell us about the second search. Yeah, the second search I was very excited about. After that first search where we found absolutely nothing, um, any any rational person at that point would have probably given up. Um, but I, I had been bit by this mm-hmm. finding a planet bug. And I knew that there were limitations to the first search that we had done. And I wanted to fix those limitations and j- do the job right. Um, it, it was enough years later, it was four years later, that technology had improved just enough mm-hmm. that we could toss out all those photographic plates, which is good because Kodak never made them after that. After I ordered that last batch of photographic plates, they said, oh, we didn't even realize those were on, on our catalog anymore, and they wiped them off the catalog. Really? So there are no more photographic plates <laughs> you saw, can get. I saw one of the last to the Kodograph. You did. You did. Um, but the, the but digital cameras, those same digital cameras that, that we all now have, mm-hmm. digital cameras were really starting to make their inroads uh, into astronomy. Now, the, the first digital cameras in astronomy were, were tiny, just like the first digital cameras that, that we all had were these 400 by 500 format or some really crazy small thing. Astronomers mm-hmm. had equally crazily small things that would cover just a tiny sliver of the sky. But even in, in, um, in 2001, we could, we could make them a little bit bigger, and uh, we, could, we could put a bunch of them together into one big super-duper camera, and it could cover mm. not quite the same area of the sky that you could with the photographic plate, um, which is a pretty big chunk of sky, but, but about the same amount of sky that you get if you, if you make a circle out of your, your thumb and forefinger and hold it out at arm's length. You could cover about that much sky at once, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like a lot, but... Now we no longer had to develop the photographic plates. We no longer had to, to load up the plates into the telescope. We were just taking these digital pictures that went straight into our computer. And so we knew that with that amount of sky at once, we would eventually be able to cover the whole sky to, to a, a, a level that no one had ever looked at before. And I just knew at this point there must be a tenth planet out there. It was your, your hunch had never left. It just had to be true. It just had to be true. Now, um, as, as you started uh, going through through your data, you, you uh, had to make yourself re- relearn and re-up your your programming skills because you'd work with somebody else. This was the, uh, in the in the sort of the third version mm-hmm. of the survey. So this this version of the survey. Um, when, when we first got this new camera in here, I, I hired a, a recently minted PhD to come in and, and run the day-to-day version of it mm-hmm. um, while I was doing things like going off and getting married and going on month-long honeymoon in South America <laughs> and all these, you know, these, those other sorts of things. But he was really good, uh, Chad Trujillo. Mm-hmm. He, he got it all working and started um, finding things, more and more things, and, and it was running incredibly smoothly, and, and uh, we, were, we were sure there was going to be something fantastic now, out there. Now tell us, what did you find? You that, did find some things, in didn't that, you? In that survey, in that, in that second survey, mm-hmm. uh, as I like to think of it, that second survey found our first truly spectacular object in the Kuiper Belt. This is one that goes by the name of uh, Quarwar. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's uh, at the time, like every other time we found something, we always thought it was going to be bigger than Pluto, and it turned out to be not bigger than Pluto. But this one, we were, we were pretty convinced this was our first bigger than Pluto thing. Um, so we, we, we discovered it, spent uh, an intensive couple of months studying it in all the detail we could before uh, announcing it to the public. It turned out to be about half the size of Pluto, not, not the size of Pluto. But, but it's still, uh, it was the first big discovery of the survey, and it really pointed the way. It kind of, if, if you were reading between the lines, it was the discovery that said Pluto's time is, is coming soon. 
Well, one of the things that yeah, you learned with this was was the the problems with methane. Quarwar uh, was was one of the interesting objects um, scientifically that that started us really understanding how atmospheres and frosts on these things in the outer solar system really work. We've we've known for a long time that that Pluto has methane on its surface mm-hmm. and therefore methane in its atmosphere. Um, nothing else had ever been found that ha- that was the same way in the outer part of the solar system until when we first found Quarwar um, and we looked at the surface and looked at the composition of the surface, it had just small hints of methane on it. And we, we just scratched our heads. How could this thing that was so much smaller, colder, um, and but have, have a little bit, but not very much? And that one, the, that part of the story, it took, it took years to figure out that part of the story. It took, uh, that discovery was in 2002. And that one is one of the things that, that it sat in, and sort of uh, simmered in our brains for for half of a decade until the right person came along, a graduate student of mine who was, this is, I, I actually really like this story because it's, a, it's just another of the ways that science works in crazy ways. This graduate student of mine was primarily working on Titan, Saturn's moon Titan, and looking at the weather on Titan. The weather on Titan is is an interesting weather because it's it has Titan has lakes and it has rain and it has clouds, but they're all made out of methane. Mm. And so she was intimately familiar with and thinking hard about methane in atmospheres and how it worked. And also she was she was in my research group where we were discovering all these things and talking about methane. And one day she said, you know, I I think I sort of understand how this works, how the methane on uh, on Quarwar and one of the other objects we found, Maki Maki. I think I understand how these work. And it's it's different from how it works on Titan, but I can I think I could write down some equations and, and predict what's going on. And I said, great, go do it. So she went off and wrote this this beautiful, simple paper that explains for the first time uh, the things that we're seeing in the Kuiper Belt and what they're made out of and made sense out of it. And it all came out of this combination of, of it's, it's sort of the, the, the social aspect of science. She would never have done that except that she and the rest of my group who are working on these things sit around and drink a lot of coffee and we talk about what we're working on and she, she figured out how to make those connections. Now, we've talked about the social aspects of science. There's also the sort of, I guess, what you might call the antisocial aspects of science. And this is with regards to, uh, in the first place, once you discovered Quarwar, you had, the first thing that sets in almost is fear. Well, it's, it's um, you know, science is a, is a very competitive business. And you're right. I do I remember that very first moment of, of discovery of Quarwar. Um, the first thought was excitement, and the second thought was, oh, we got to make sure we get this out before somebody else discovers it, too. Because in science, uh, rightly in science, whoever makes the announcement of something first is officially the discoverer. If I discovered Quarwar and sat on it for five years and didn't tell anybody, and then somebody else discovered it and announced it, then they would be the discoverer. And that's, that's good, because that puts pressure on me to be fast. But the other pressure on me is to be complete. I didn't want to just discover Quarwar uh, one day in June and announce it to the world the next day. I wanted to be able to write scientific papers, analyze it, understand something before doing it. So, so we 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 worked very very hard that summer. Um, we we went from discovering it in June to our first paper describing it was in October. And and for a new discovery in science. That is extraordinarily fast, and the only reason we were that extraordinarily fast is because we worked really hard uh, that whole summer. It was tough, but that whole time, you know, I would I would 
sort of nervously check the newspapers every morning to see if somebody had discovered this thing out from under us. So we were, we were nervous. We were nervous the whole time. And the other aspect of science that's not so happily social are some internet chat groups that have to do with the comment on and feel they have some bearing on the naming of these objects. There, it's, it's an interesting thing about the solar system because, because it's such a cultural thing in addition to being a scientific thing. There are people who care deeply about things in the solar system like what precisely you name these objects and and whether or not you you follow the exact correct procedure as to whether you do it or not um and uh i i i always tried very hard to to come up with the best appropriate names for this quarwar for example is the uh um we wanted to name quarwar as something after a a uh, local mythology rather than Greek or Roman mythology. So, so Quarwar is the is the creation force of the the local Native American tribe, the Tongva Indians, the Gabrielino Indians in the Los Angeles basin, which is nobody would argue an inappropriate name except for the fact that it's a little bit of an unpronounceable name. But other than that, it's a it's a perfectly good and appropriate name. But what we really wanted to do was have that name associated with it at the moment of the announcement. Um, so we sort of pulled some strings with the International Astronomical Union and told them what we were doing, made sure that was okay with them to, to announce it that way before the formal process of naming it happened. And they thought, great, because it's a good name, we'll keep it, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll like that. But there were a lot of people on this, this amateur astronomer chat group who thought that this was just proof that, uh, that I was evil, that I was, I was breaking the rules, I was bending the rules to my own evil purposes, and, and they always had to go through uh, the official process to name their incredibly insignificant asteroid um, that they wanted to name after a cat or something. Um, I don't say that in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a mean way. There are a lot of things that get named that are, that are not particularly significant objects in the solar system, and so it's good to have some rules about how to do it. But for these very big, very significant chunks, uh, we, we didn't want to go through the years-long process of, of approving that name, and I think we did something very appropriate. These chat groups, are, are they mailing lists? Is it a chat room? What, what, how, how does it, I'm just curious about the technology. The technology, um, these days, I don't know how it started out because it started before these happened. These days it is literally a Yahoo chat group. Okay. Once you had discovered uh, Quarwar, um, you, had some, you, you were encouraged, to say the least. So talk about um, what, what happened next. Yeah, so Quarwar, it was, it was, it was obvious to me that once... Once we had found Quarwar, we had, mm -hmm. we had only started this second survey. It had only been running for about six months, and, uh, and, and we found Quarwar. So it was very clear. There, there were going to be big things out there, and this was going to be very, excited and very exciting. Um, and we spent uh, another year on that second version of the survey, and we found, we found a lot of things. We found, uh, gosh, probably, probably 35, 40 new objects out in the Kuiper Belt. None of them as big as Quarwar. Quarwar mm -hmm. was the biggest thing that we'd found in that, that second survey. Um, but we weren't discouraged because we knew that there was a third survey coming along. Um, and this third survey, we were, we were getting rid of the, the initial camera that we had put together and putting an even bigger, even better camera in there. And uh, we just knew this was the one that was going to get so much of the sky that, uh, that we were definitely going to finally find this 10th planet. 
and at the same time, the technology of your personal life was improving as well. So to speak. Technology <laughs> of my personal life. I mean, I'm not sure what that even means. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, in, in that you were about to get married, and oh, the, yeah. So that's uh, this. It's funny it's when I when I think about this whole time period where that I, 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 the discovery of Quarwar um, coincided basically with when I proposed to my wife. Um, and, and we were married within that next year. And, and even as I was just saying this to you, you know, oh, we spent a whole, uh, a whole other year surveying and we found other things. My memory of what we found in that other year is very dim. Mm -hmm. um, and I was sitting here thinking, why don't I remember any of these things? And the answer is, of course, uh, on the obvious side, is that entire year of that next part of the survey did coincide with, uh, with, a, with a wedding and a honeymoon and, um, and, and a lot of just actually trying to be a normal person who goes home at night instead of uh, spending all my time sitting in front of the computer analyzing data. So, and, and I think this is what's so interesting about the, the way the book is woven in, in the story you tell, because we get to see that science is a, is a very human thing, and it, it ebbs and flows not just with the technology that you have to, to hand, but also with what's going on in your life. And I think that that's a, a really valuable understanding of science. And it's, it, it, and it's certainly true in my story, um, as I know, but it, I, it must be true for everybody else. Everybody else has a, a life besides the science they're doing, and it, it certainly affects when things happen and what happens and, and why throughout science. Now, your third survey, though, you did have to kind of pull yourself back to science, and, and that, was, that wasn't easy for you, was it? The, the third survey was started out roughly. The, the third survey coincided right with that same moment when, when Chad Trujillo, who had been the, the new PhD who had come to work with me, he had gotten a new job back in Hawaii where he really wanted to be. Um, just as this new survey with a new camera, very complicated and, and uh, sort of bulky camera, um, was getting started and we started doing the survey with this third this third survey and we found just nothing and we found nothing because it was the everything would just crash all the time and the the, the software Chad had done a very good job of trying to pre-write some software before he left but there's no chance you could ever pre-write software for a new camera that no one's ever used um i like that idea pre-write pre it yeah <laughs> for brand new yeah and 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 hope it works so we i think i had been the most delusional i had kind of crossed my fingers and hoped that it was going to work and and it just wasn't working and uh i looked at it and realized the only way to make it work was going to be to to trash everything we had done and start from scratch and I couldn't do it there was no way I, I could find someone to to, to do this all in, in the right amount of time and the only logical solution I finally came to was to finally just give up we had done a lot of the sky and and I had always said I was going to find something bigger than Pluto but but we had covered a pretty big chunk of the sky and we'd covered most of the spots in the sky where we thought things should be hiding so I, I, I went with one of my, my students at the time um, to go get a cup of coffee and, and explain this to him just to, you know, bounce the idea off, us, off of him. And I said, look, I'm, I'm done. I can't. I, I, it's going to take hiring someone brand new, and they'll take a year to even get started, and there's no way we can do this. I'm just going to have to stop, and it's okay. We did good. We, we, it's, it's time to move on. And he just looked at me and said, are you, are you, are you crazy? I said, well, no, I, I just, there's no other choice. And he said, are you, you, you are going to be so 
mad if somebody else finds this 10th planet that you've been looking for all along and it's because you just gave up. And I said, yeah, but I, 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 I can't do it. And um, he said, you have to find a way to do it. And I went back to the office and, and, and beat my head against the, uh, the desk for a while until I realized that, that I could do it. The only way to do it was to do it and to do it myself. Um, which is something I'm good at. I do those things well, that, that computer programming aspect of it, but I hadn't really been doing that day-to-day stuff for a couple of years. I had, I had let, uh, I, had, I had sort of become scientific manager instead of uh, scientific worker bee. Um, but I did it. I, I dove in and went back to my old uh, bachelor days and ways of spending countless evenings sitting here hunched in front of the computer getting things done. Um, and it didn't take nearly as long as I had worried. It only took about two months of, of just super intensive work to get that third survey up and running. And, I, and, it, uh, and I'm glad we did because the third survey is the one that really finally found all the very exciting things out there. That was the, and, and that's what was also the beginning of a, of a exciting part of your personal life too. Beginning of an exciting part. Let's see. What's I see? Even I have sometimes have a hard time remembering which one was where when. Um, the beginning of that third survey actually started. There was there was a year of that third survey that ran, um, where we first started finding some some very exciting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was I was newly married. I was I was still working hard, but but uh, but but my wife was was uh, was very understanding because she actually works harder than me, so it made it easier. Um, <laughs> so she was always happy if I would stay a little bit late in working so she could even get more work done. And uh, we found some some of the really best exciting things. Um, well, tell us about what you found and how. And, and because it's your computer programming uh, chops, some of the things you had to do with it were pretty interesting, I thought. The, the, the one that, um, that I think uh, even the people who I work most closely with actually don't appreciate because I, I, I did all this um, just in the in the privacy of my own room in my computer is that the one the one really interesting thing that we discovered um, in that very like uh, a week a week a, a month after finally getting the surf third survey running um, we found this one object that we almost missed and we almost missed it because it was so far away that it was moving so slowly that the computer almost didn't find it and it almost didn't find it simply because I had a software switch saying. If it's moving this slow, it, it can't be real. This is the fastest, this is the slowest moving object that you should even bother looking for, computer. And I had to do that because otherwise I'd be overwhelmed with things that weren't actually moving but just jiggled it a little bit. But this object was so interesting. This was the object uh, Sedna. And Sedna is, to my mind, actually the, the most important scientific discovery that, that I've made in all this time. Um, Sedna is so far away from the sun. It's so far away from the planets that it's, it's, it's a, an object in a new region of space that we didn't know anything about before. And we're still trying to understand exactly what Sedna is telling us, but one of the things it must be telling us is that it's, it's leftover. It's a fossil record from the, the birth of the solar system itself. We don't know yet how to read this fossil record, but when we can find more of these things, we'll learn about the earliest, earliest conditions of, of everything. You, you said you think that this is maybe the result of the interaction between the sun and other stars as the planets are I, forming. I think that's what it is. That's, that's to me, the, the, this is a point where I, I have a hypothesis. I do mm-hmm. have a hypothesis. My hypothesis is, is that when the sun formed, that there were many other stars very close to it. It would have been an exciting place to, if, you're, if you were on the Earth, except 
there was no Earth at the time. Um, but if you looked up in your non-existent sky, you would see you would see uh, hundreds, maybe even thousands of stars brighter than any of the brightest stars that we currently see in the sky. It would have been just spectacular. In this time period, all these stars were so close by they could have been stripping off. Uh, parts of the solar system, things in what is now the Kuiper Belt, and pulling them into these oblong orbits farther away from the planets than they are now. All of those stars have slowly drifted away from the sun, and we don't, we can't even find them anymore because they're gone uh, so long ago. But they have left this fossil imprint of their earliest time. One of the things that comes out of this book, I think, then it's very interesting, is the importance of teaching science when you're doing science. Because you're, you're, the, you're, the classes you taught, and you were talking about this, your Rocks for Jocks class uh, proved to be a, 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 an inspiration for you. I, I think it's, it's the Rocks for Jocks class, which, which at Caltech I like to call Earth Science for Eggheads, um, because that's what they are. Uh, that class, the other class I was teaching right when we discovered Sedna was, was on the formation of the solar system. And so... You know, I was primed as soon as I discovered that thing out there to th start thinking about how it fit into this whole picture. It really, it makes a big difference. I think if, um, if I just sat here and spent all my time doing research and not teaching, uh, I would have a much more narrow perspective that, that wouldn't let me make those connections quite as fast. So it's, it really is uh, a, a very good system um, where a lot of our research happens with people who are also doing the, the teaching at that cutting edge too. Now, was this around the time that you finally had to admit you lost the bet? It was. Actually, the, the, the discovery of Sedna was a year before that initial bet that I had um, came up. And so I had, I had another year of working that I, the bet was um, December 31st, 2004, somebody had to find a planet and nobody had found one yet. I had a year. So I worked really hard through that summer. And then when, when the summertime came, I realized, and by, by looking at Sedna, which was so far away and I almost missed, and also looking at all the other things we, we had found, I realized that there, there might be things further out that my software would have missed um, because I had that cutoff. I couldn't, though, just take that cutoff out because I would be inundated with, with junk that the computer thought was moving. You know, every, every time you take a picture of a star, you get a little bit of a jump, a little bit of a jiggle, and the computer would say every single star in the sky was moving and was a planet, and I would, I would go crazy. Um, but, I, but I came up with a slightly better way of, of being able to refine exactly where everything was and pinpoint them down very precisely and look for very tiny movements. Even doing that, I was still overwhelmed um, with, with sometimes as many as, as 500 or 1,000 uh, things in a day that the computer said was moving that, that, that wasn't moving. But I realized that if I wanted to win this bet, which I desperately did, I had to find a way to find these more distant things that are, that are moving more slowly. So I rewrote all the software. I reanalyzed every single bit of data that I had ever taken, looking for just that one thing that was moving a little bit more slowly um, in hopes that by that December 31st, I would, I would find that planet. But you didn't, but you almost, you got an extension on your bet. Well, you? <laughs> it was December 31st, came and went, and, and I had lost. And I wrote email to my friend that I'd made the bet with, and I said, you know, I, you, you, you win, no planets. I, had, I hadn't gotten through all of the data that I had wanted to get through, um, but I had gotten through most of it. I had gotten, I had, I had been slowed down a little um, 
inadvertently, I think, by by being distracted by the fact that that my wife was now pregnant at the mm-hmm. time too. So I I had meant to spend all of November and December searching through the old data sets, and I will admit to having looked at you know baby name books and 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 developmental biology books and teacher kid sign language books and and all these things instead of sitting in my office pasted to the computer like I should have been. Now. Um, However, y- you did end up finding two things. And, and so tell us about uh, 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 Santa and Easter Bunny. Well, so Santa was, um, Santa almost made the cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, Santa I found on uh, December 28th. This was when I was still working hard to win that bet. Mm-hmm. I was looking through the old data, and sure enough, there was, there was Santa right there. Santa was the brightest thing we'd ever found, um, and meaning that it's probably the biggest thing we'd ever found. And... Uh, we, even at the time, as with everything else, thought, wow, I wonder if it's bigger than, than Pluto. It turns out not to be. We, we very quickly found out a lot more about Santa. It has moons around it. And moons around it means you can weigh it very precisely. And it's only about a third the mass of Pluto. So we knew that that was nowhere close. Um, and that was, that was my last hope for winning that bet. But the, the, even though I lost the bet on December 31st, I, I did go back to work. Um, because I still had more data that I hadn't finished analyzing yet because of that, that, that baby coming along. Um, and on January 5th, just a couple days after losing the bet, I was looking through old data, data from uh, about a year, and, a year and two months earlier. And, uh, and, and there it was on the screen. This was now the brightest thing we'd ever found, but it was also the slowest moving thing ever. I would not have found it without that new software to look for things that were moving so slowly. And it's moving so slowly because it's the most distant thing we had ever found. In fact, it's the most distant thing that humans have ever seen in the, in the solar system. And coupling the brightest thing we had found with the most distant thing we'd ever found, usually when things get that far away, they get pretty faint. Sedna was so faint, it was almost hard to find. This thing was so bright, I knew instantly at that point, that this thing was at least as big as Pluto, if not bigger. And uh, I, I wrote to my friend and said, hey, can I have a, 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 a five-day extension on that bet? And she said, absolutely. She was, she was happy to, uh, I didn't tell her what was going on, but I told her, I said, I'll, I'll get back to you. I just need that extension. Now, it's not often that we, that a former wrestler turned actor uh, comes into the world of astronomy, but... <laughs> It's true. So at this point, you know, we had, we always give these things when we find them, we give them nicknames. We mm-hmm. give them nicknames because we need something to, to call it amongst ourselves while we're doing those couple months long studies. So, so uh, uh, Sedna was, for example, the Flying Dutchman based on its ability to disappear all the time. Um, Dutch. Dutch. Dutch for short. Um, the, the one that we had found on December 28th, we called Santa, seems very appropriate. We had been saving a special name for the first object we found that was bigger than Pluto. And um, we had, it, was, it was because uh, things out, th- new planets had always been called, hypothetical new planets have always been called Planet X, X for unknown or X for 10. Nibiru. Uh, or, or Nibiru. Um, <laughs> So we wanted something that started with an X, mm-hmm. and you know that's already getting hard on you. You're, you might be going to uh, to Aztec mythology at that point, but then that means you have to have some god that uh, that they sacrificed virgins to, which seems a little unsavory. So we we wanted to keep the X. Uh, we needed mythology, 
And um, and we actually we really thought that there weren't enough um, planets named for women. You know, there's sort of Venus is it, and that seems a little unfair. So we, we wanted a a female mythological X. And when you put those three together, you're you're left with no choice um, but to name your your new planet Xena. And Xena, of course, is only TV mythology, not real mythology. But you know, Pluto was named after a cartoon dog, so that seemed okay. <laughs> Now, you, you discovered uh, Xena, and, and once you discovered this, um, you, you found that somebody else had found Santa. Well, there was, a, there was one in between, mm-hmm. too. This is when the um, uh, I'm, I'm semi-convinced that, uh, that, that, that personal fertility and scientific fertility are, are all, all related. So first we found Santa, which was the biggest thing we'd ever found. Then we found uh, Zena, which was now the new biggest thing we'd ever found. Mm-hmm. My my wife is three months pregnant at the time. Um, two three months later, we now find one more that's as big as the three of them, or as bright as the three uh, of the two other ones, as Santa and Zena. And that one is, of course, we found it day after Easter, so we call that one Easter Bunny. Easter Bunny. So suddenly, usually, as I said before about 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 Quarwar, we we spend incredible efforts to get these scientific papers out as fast as possible. We suddenly had the three biggest, most interesting discoveries we had ever made all stacked on top of each other and my wife is now six months pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I'm about, I'm scheduled to take family leave starting in July to mm-hmm. take six months off to, to stay with my, my baby daughter who's on her way. Um, these things did not actually all compute but I, was, I, I could not figure out how this was all going to work and I somehow in my head thought, it's okay. I'll I'll make it all work out. It'll it'll somehow be okay. Talk about what happened when somebody else uh, found uh, your objects, because they the, this whole there's a whole detective story. There's there's a there's a whole out of nowhere uh, detective story and international intrigue uh, that you would just never expect to be associated with this story, and yet it was there. It was it was. It was uh, 21 days after my daughter was born. Mm-hmm. Um, she was she was born about a week earlier than I had calculated in all my meticulous calculations of when she was going to come, which of course you can't really do that very well, so it's not you surprising. Were, you were expending a lot of your scientific expertise <laughs> creating chart, pie charts and graphs I, and, and on... I div- did. <laughs> I have, I have my, my favorite, I still have this beautiful chart of, uh, of every moment when she slept and was awake and was happy and was sad and when she ate um, for her first about four months of life. And it's it's fascinating because you can see you can see her change. You can see when she moved from not acknowledging day and night to mostly sleeping through the nights. What as her you can see as her feeding space apart. Uh, you can see um, you can see this particular day, the twenty second day of her life. You can see her cry the entire day, um, and I think she cried the entire day because that was the first day I I left home and had to go into my office. And I, I, I left home and had to go into my office because I got an email that said, hey, somebody just discovered Santa, which is something that I always knew would happen, could happen. Is Scooped. It, yeah, you could, you, if you are, if there's always that possibility that you don't write your papers fast enough and somebody does it. I was so close because <laughs> I, was, I was within a day <laughs> of finishing my paper on Santa and announcing Santa because I wanted to get it done before my daughter was born. But then she came a week earlier than I had planned on, and I didn't get the paper out that day. I was going to finish it the day she was born, and it didn't happen. Science history has it changed. It is. It is. I, I blame her for this one. Um, but it's it's a 
It's a perfectly legitimate thing. They had found it. They had found it only uh, a day before. They did not feel the need to try to write a scientific paper about it. They just simply announced it to the world. They had found this thing. They also announced it was twice the size of Pluto, which we knew it wasn't. Um, so it, I mean, it, it, it. I felt like I had been punched in the gut. Uh, mm. You know, my one of my big discoveries was suddenly scooped and was no longer my discovery. And uh, the other interesting thing is that is that we had already posted preliminary announcement that we were going to make an announcement. We had mm-hmm. we had posted a title for a talk we were going to give in a month um, where we were going to announce the existence of this object. And a couple of astronomers and, and people in the press caught on that these were the same objects, that we were going to announce it, and they scooped us on it. And they, the you know, they think, ooh, this is going to be good. There's going to be a astronomical cat fight. So they started saying, oh, it's a big dispute now. The astronomers don't know who's discovering. So I had to quick write, you know, I put up a big website saying, no, 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 this is the way science works. They announced it first. I, I would have preferred that they had done it by writing a scientific paper first, but that's only my preference. It's not mm-hmm. required. They announced it first. They are the discoverers. And then I told everybody what we knew. It has a moon around it. It's a third the mass of, uh, of Pluto. Um, here's its orbit, all these other things. But they are the discoverers. And I, I wrote a nice email to the discoverers saying, hey, you know, as the discoverers, you guys get to name it. Let me know when you come up with a name because we'll, we'll, ma- we'll name the moon something that kind of goes with your name of the, of, the, of the object itself. And by the way, it's only a third the size of Pluto. It's not twice the size of Pluto. And congratulations. And, and you know, so I was, I was unhappy with myself and felt horrible about it. But that's the way science works. And I'm still glad science works that way because otherwise there would be no pressure for me to go fast and I need that pressure. Everybody needs that pressure. I still wish they had written the paper. They should have had the, felt the pressure to have done science instead of just make an announcement, but that's, I can't control that part. Well, it turned out that uh, their science uh, involved uh, the, the use of that great scientific research tool, Google. Yeah, so this is a part that, that uh, uh, I, I still to this day find sort of shocking and I still wish I knew exactly what happened but as as it turned out well the only thing I I, I realized on that next day is that um, although I didn't think they had done it I realized that when we had made the announcement of our talk we had used the, the name of the object that our computer database spit out which is uh, K40506A, which merely tells you the day that the object was discovered, and it's a K for Kuiper Belt. It turns out you could use that name and a little sleuthing to find out where the object was. And the sleuthing involved looking at a database that we didn't even know existed. The database was run by an astronomer who had built the camera for a telescope in South America that we were using to track Santa and Xena and Easter Bunny. And as we, as we tracked Santa and took new pictures of it, where we pointed went into the database. Usually that's not a problem. I, nobody could think of any reason why that would be something that shouldn't just be a publicly accessible database, except if you know that Mike Brown is looking for planets and you see that he's been using this telescope and you see there's an object named K40506A and you see his announcement that he's going to announce the largest new Kuiper Belt object and you see that it is pointing here and then here and then here and then here, you know everything you need to know. You can go find that object now because you know where the telescope's been pointing. Now, their claim is, well, we, we won't even get to that part yet because I didn't, think, I didn't think anything of it except what I thought was, oh no, uh, 
Easter Bunny and Xena are in that same database. It's not going to take very long before somebody figures out that there are these other two objects that haven't yet been scooped that they can get out of that database. And in fact, it took about 12 hours. Um, so by the time I woke up the next morning, somebody had posted online the data from the database saying, look, there are more of them. And so we were required to, with no planning, uh, do a international press conference late on a Friday after the last Friday afternoon in July, announcing the existence of, of Xena and of Easter Bunny, and also talking a little bit about Santa. So l the last afternoon in July, of course, last Friday afternoon in July is is the perfect place to have a press release and a press conference. You know, saying that you have stopped beating your wife or something <laughs> like that. This is this is where things go to be buried forever and ever. Um, so it didn't it didn't actually make as much of a splash as as it might have right then. But you can't say that you just found something bigger than Pluto without everybody eventually catching on that there's something going on out there. When you, you when once you had uh, made this announcement, you you started looking at some of the logs for this database. Yeah, we 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 were really busy as soon as that mm -hmm. happened because and you were busy too. You were well. You're a, my you're daughter is now 23 days old. Um, that 22nd day is the day that she cried. She cried the whole time because I left to go do a press conference and I was possibly a little stressed. Um, yeah, I, I can you're go back and look at my... You're sleep-deprived. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't... I was well, a wreck. You, you were putting cat kibble in the washer, yeah, cat litter in the washer. I was, it was, you know, I, no different than any other uh, father with a 22-day-old, um, except sure. that I suddenly had to do interviews and appear in, in on Good Morning America and, and all these other crazy things that you're just not prepared for. Although the, the Good Morning America turned out okay because... They wanted to film it at 2 in the morning and wanted to know if there was any chance I'd be willing to get up at 2 in the morning and come down to their studios. It's like, sure, I'm up at 2 in the morning anyway. <laughs> that makes no difference to me at all. We don't do day and night in my house these days. <laughs> so that worked out okay. And in all of this, I still didn't really think very much about the, the, the Spanish group that had, uh, that had made the discovery of Santa until I got an email from the astronomer who kept the uh, database in Ohio. And he said, um, I've got something to tell you. He said, you know... I was looking at that database, and I realized it was my database. I didn't even realize it was mine that was the problem, and I fixed it, so that won't happen again. But in looking at it, I realized that before the announcement, the, the, the announcement of the discovery of, of Santa, there were a couple of strange accesses to the database, and they all came from these addresses. And we traced the IP address back, and it traced it not only back to Spain, which is where the astronomers were, and it traced not only back to the institute where those astronomies were, but because I had been um, corresponding with those astronomers, I had their actual IP addresses of their computers that they sent emails from. And it came from their computers. Their computers had accessed that database the day before they made their announcement of a discovery. They, at this point, my mind immediately... Uh, is fairly convinced of that I know what happened. Um, I sent them an email saying, hey, by the way, we now know you did this. Uh, if you are willing to confess and just say, yeah, we did, we shouldn't have done it, this was bad, I'll be willing to say, gee, isn't science a strange competitive place and we'll let bygones be guygones. Um, but they didn't. They instead 
doubled down and said, actually, this is all your fault. You are evil for uh, hiding all these things that you find, uh, and we would do it again. And uh, to which I was, my jaw just dropped. Their, their, their current claim, by the way, just to, to, to get it clear, is that they did legitimately discover Santa, and it was it only by chance the very next day they happened to find that database. But it was merely a coincidence. Uh, that's the kind of coincidence. Uh. <laughs> yeah, as I, I remember telling this to my, my wife at the time, you know, so first off, they, they, they never admitted to using the database until their fingerprints were shown on it. And then they made up a fairly implausible sounding story that could never be proved one way or the other. And I was like, I said, look, Diane, you know, I, I have watched enough law and order to understand exactly what that means. We, we all know that that's what the criminals always do when they're, when they're faced with it. But in the end, I will never know, I think, exactly what happened. There is always this ever so slight off chance that they really did do it. They really made this discovery um, and then got slammed by, uh, by, by someone for doing it. The question rapidly arose, what exactly did they discover? Was it a planet? And that brings up a, another question, which it, which you point out had never really been uh, specifically discussed, which is what exactly is a planet? Yeah, so so they they only, this is actually a, a funny part of the story, which is they, they only discovered Santa, which is mm-hmm. a third the, third the mass of, of Pluto. Um, nobody anywhere said, oh, so it's a planet, right? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. However, when we found Xena, which is about the size of Pluto, we thought it was bigger, quite a bit bigger at the time. It's actually, like everything else, its size has come down, and now it, it is close to being uh, a Pluto twin, as far as we can tell. Um, but when we found something bigger, then you have to answer that question. You, you no longer have to ask, answer the question about Pluto. Uh, you have to answer the question about, about Xena. Is Xena a planet? Or is Xena not a planet? Easter Bunny, it turned out to be just a little bit smaller than Pluto. Nobody cared about Easter Bunny. It's smaller than Pluto, so who cares? Um, <laughs> but if it's bigger than Pluto, even by a little bit, or we think it is by a little bit, you have to care all of a sudden. So that precipitated this year-long debate uh, and, and astronomical soul-searching about what is and what is not a planet. And they had to form the uh, AES, is it? IAU. IAU had to form a secret committee. They had to meet in secret. They, I, I did a secret squirrel, and you have to spell this S-E-E-K-R-I-T. They were secret. <laughs> they were that secret. <laughs> they were that secret. They, but they, they, this was only their third committee was mm-hmm. secret. Their first committee already existed. They, they conveniently, they actually had a committee in place to talk about planets, not because anyone cared about the solar system at that point, but because we were finding planets around other stars. Mm. And the question wasn't how small can a planet be? The question was how big can a planet be? When is it a planet and when is it a star? And so a committee was already in place for that. So they voted and their vote was, well, we, we don't really know and we don't really want to think about the solar system very much. So we're just going to say Pluto's a planet and anything bigger than Pluto is a planet too. And the IAU looked at their report and said, yeah, we don't really like that. So they disbanded that committee. They formed a new committee. Um, which did the best possible thing a committee could do, which is to form a subcommittee. Um, and that subcommittee <laughs> made a report, um, which was, I, I, I can't remember what this one said. The subcommittee, I believe, came to a similar conclusion that Pluto was a planet and anything bigger was a planet too. Um, but then the IU decided that the committee didn't have the right to let the subcommittee make the decision. So the committee was disbanded. And they, then they fi- formed their final 
secret committee. No one was supposed to know who was on it, um, and nobody was supposed to know even that they existed or that they were discussing it. And they finally came out uh, on the day of the, once every three years, the International Astronomical Union has their big uh, meeting. And on the first day of that big meeting, they came out with their big announcement. Here is our definition of the word planet. There'll be a vote on it at the end, but we, we have already determined everybody's in agreement, so this is just the way it's going to be. Now, they had a really unusual definition of planet. It seems so bizarre. Can you? They, they, had, they had so many bizarre things going on. Um, <laughs> the first one, um, it, it's funny, the first, the first bizarre part of it um, is the one that, got, that, that doesn't sound as bizarre until you think about it pretty hard. Um, their first bizarre aspect was that they, they first said that anything that goes around the sun that is round is a planet. And, and round, round because it, it is true that as, you, as an object gets bigger and bigger or as you pile more and more rocks on it, um, it, it eventually gets enough gravity that it pulls itself into a round shape. And that happens with fairly small Kuiper Belt objects. You only have to be about 300 miles across in the Kuiper Belt to be round. So there are, there are hundreds, probably hundreds of round Kuiper Belt objects, one round asteroid series, one almost round asteroid Vesta that everybody would be arguing about. So the, the International Astronomical Union said all those things are planets. <laughs> so now which, the solar system has hundreds of planets. Hundreds of planets, um, which is the first time, I think, in human history that anyone ever tried to make up a definition just purely by fiat. I mean, where, where does this crazy idea that, that, that anything round is a planet come from? Well, it could only come from the mind of, of scientists, I think, semi-desperate to keep Pluto. I, I think that culturally, I mean, I'm pretty sure that never in the history of humanity until that moment could you have ever gone on the streets and asked somebody what a planet is, and they would have said, well, I think it's anything that goes around the sun and is in hydrostatic equilibrium, mm -hmm. which is really the way the astronomers said it. Um, culturally, I'm pretty sure that if you asked people what planets were, and you said, don't tell me the names of any of them, I don't care what you think are planets, I just want you to tell me what a planet is, I think you would come up with a description sort of like all of the large dominant objects going around the sun are planets. And everybody knows about asteroids. Those aren't planets. They're all tiny little things. That's, that's Krypton. That's, those are just Krypton. Um, so astronomers first off said uh, everything round is a planet. doesn't matter where it is in space. If it's round and going around the sun, it's a planet. To which I raise my hand and I say, um, the moon's round. And they say, oh, no, 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 the moon is round because it's going around the Earth. And I say, wait, wait a minute, you just said it doesn't matter where it is in the solar system. Uh, if it's round, it's a planet. They say, well, no, but moons aren't planets. That's crazy. And then they said, oh, yeah, but by the way, Pluto's moon, Charon, is a planet, even though it's smaller. It's, it's probably the, the 87th smallest object, largest object in the solar system. It would be the 13th planet by this initial proposal. And I said, um, you just said that moons aren't planets. They're like, oh, no, no, but Charon is special. Because when Pluto and Charon orbit, they don't, it's not that Charon orbits Pluto, it actually orbits their center of mass, and their center of mass is slightly outside of Pluto. <laughs> so yeah, that suddenly changes everything, to which my very favorite um, uh, moment after that was, was an astronomer at UC Santa Cruz, Greg Laughlin, um, wrote this beautiful press release uh, announcing the 
um, the moment in time when the moon would become a planet because the moon is moving further away from the earth and the moon eventually will have a center, the moon and earth will have a center of mass outside the earth, at which point it will instantly become a planet in, in, <laughs> in good standing, only in a few hundred million years. And, and he was looking forward to that moment. So it was, it was not only do I think the idea of saying everything in hydrostatic equilibrium is a planet, not only do I think that's crazy, but their, their definition was so internally inconsistent that it was, it was, it was simply pure classification. Saying mm -hmm. that everything is round as a planet except for moons, except for Sharon because it's got this extra special case is just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so because of that craziness, um, the astronomers who had been told basically that they were to go along with this because our super secret committee has insisted that this is going to be the definition, astronomers revolted um, seeing such nonsense. And uh, I, I didn't think it would ever happen. I didn't mm -hmm. think the astronomers would do it. And I still don't think the astronomers would have revolted so strongly if the secret committee re definition hadn't been so ridiculous. <laughs> I think if they had actually come out with a semi-reasonable sounding definition, everyone would have said, well, I don't like it that much, but at least it's internally consistent and it's okay. But when you go that crazy um, just to keep Pluto as a planet, uh, everybody revolted and said, you know what? We have all thought that Pluto should not be a planet for a long time. Let's just do this. So you found yourself at 5 o'clock in the morning. I, was, I wasn't there at the meeting in mm. Prague where all this happened because I, I, I knew that at this meeting, one of two things was going to happen. Either, either I was going to be declared the discoverer of the 10th planet or maybe 15 planets if all the round things were planets. Um, I would either be the only living planet discoverer or the person in human history who had discovered the most planets, or I would ha be the guy who once had a planet but is now taken away from him. Um, and I thought, you know, everybody has heard me talking about this for the past year. Everybody knows my opinions and my arguments. Actually going there to give them in person does not help anything. So I'm not going to go. So I went on vacation with my family um, to, a, to a, a little island in the, the San Juan Islands um, as far away as I could possibly be and, and watched this unfold in the newspapers and, and on the web. Um, but I didn't stay on vacation long enough. So by the time they had their final vote, I was back in Pasadena. And uh, I, I came down early in the morning because they were in Prague. So I was, had to do it on Prague time. Came down at 5 in the morning to, to set up uh, a big press venue here at Caltech for, so all the press could watch the debate and, uh, and get the commentary and, and see what would happen. You know, one of the things that strikes me about science when I read this book in, in terms of the language and the way you write about it is the importance of, of language in science. And I'm thinking, uh, especially in terms of writing about it, analogy and metaphor. That's the, that's the, they're the, the cruxes upon which good scientific it, understanding and writing turns. It I, it, it's the way we think, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, there are people, and, and they, they exist on this campus in abundance. There are people who really, truly think mathematically. Their brains just think in equations. Um, I, most people aren't, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I, I think in terms of analogy and concept. And then if I need to, I will sit down and, and work out the, the, the math and the physics that the, the analogy and the concept are, are describing. But my brain thinks by these analogies and concepts. And, and I think that being able to describe those and having people have the right concepts and analogies in their mind is, is the best way to teach them about the actual science. Um, 
People, people, most people don't learn a lot by looking at equations, um, but they really do by, by hearing stories and, and analogies. And I think the, the stories in your book, you, you do a great job creating characters, both yourself and, the, and your wife and the people around you. I'd like you to talk about, as a scientist, it's one thing to write about your science, and you have to be precise and you have to be, you know, clear. Writing about people is not so, is not the same thing, is it? And, I, and I'll tell you, writing about your wife is actually potentially very dangerous. <laughs> um, she, she, uh, I asked her ahead of time if she wanted to read read the book and and uh, have me take out any sections that she was uncomfortable with, and she said, "No, no, no, go ahead, write. I, it's it's okay." Um, she still can't get herself to actually read the book, though. Um, it, it it worries her, but it's it, it's an interesting question. I actually haven't thought about that very much about about characters and how to write about characters. Um, and and I'm not sure that I could do it for some arbitrary person I don't know very well. It's easy to write about me as a character because I just write and that's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is easy because she's her and I can write about her. My daughter is, you know, uh, between zero and three at the time. So the, they're, they're, they're fairly easy characters to write about because they're, they're all equally crazy in their own crazy three-year-old ways. But I don't, I don't know. I've, I have never, it's, it is an unusual thing for me to have done. I've not, for, for me, unusual for me, it's not something you do in scientific papers. It's not something you even do in in popular level science articles or, mm-hmm. or books. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. I wasn't, I, it was something that I wasn't, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out, but it seems okay. It's, I think one of the things you do well is to, you're pretty even-handed with yourself, and, and so you kind of give yourself a hard time. <laughs> well, this, this is in the character of my wife, who, who in, in fact, she's in real help. life, in real life, gives me a hard time. No, I mean she's she's great for staying grounded because, uh, you know, there's this this moment when it's uh, in the book it sounds thoroughly ridiculous because like in real life it was thoroughly ridiculous where I saw the first sonogram of my child to be and. They're very specific-looking little thing. These sonograms—they sort of have this weird, distorted perspective caused by the the, the wand that they're using, and mm-hmm. the and they're also on that on they're on this thermal paper, so they're kind of reddish tint. When I saw it, the very first thing that I thought um, was, "Oh my gosh, this looks exactly like the the." Um, the Russian Venera probe that landed on the surface of Venus and took these weird periscope pictures with the same tint. And I said this to my wife, who just looks at me like, you are just insane, which which is what she says to me a lot of the times when I, you know, these are the analogies that I come up with, um, which are quirky and peculiar to some crazy planetary scientist with these experiences. But she's very good at, uh, at, at reminding me that the rest of the world is actually not quite like this. And you remind us that science is more like the rest of the world than we expect it to be. And I think that's the, the real beauty of this book. I, I, I think, well, it's harder for me to say because I probably don't know what the rest of the world is like quite as much. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I feel like, you know, I, I have friends who are scientists. Um, m- most of my friends are scientists and their families. And, and uh, they, most of them are you know, they all have their scientific geeky quirks about them, as as uh, as do I. But, you know, most of them are just normal people, too. And they have lives and families, and, and uh, it influences all of it. 
I've been speaking with Mike Brown. His new book is How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Thank you for joining me, Mike. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.